0: Hey, everyone. Before we start the show, I want to take a quick second to tell you about a new comic out from DC Vertigo. Not mine. You're welcome. Called Lucifer. Lucifer is written by Dan Waters and illustrated by Sebastian and Max Fiumara. It's really a beautiful looking book. And I got to talk to Dan at New York Comic Con. And he is absolutely the right guy to write this weird and kind of sad Take on Lucifer. Uh, It's part of the new Sandman universe where Neil Gaiman is letting really cool and diverse slate of writers create new threads of his Sandman series. If you want to know more about this whole new Sandman universe, check out the mini-sode I recorded about that last month. Uh, And there's also a a big one-shot comic out that came out in August called Sandman Universe where you can uh, uh, learn more about it. And that's a good background for this lucifer comic lucifer this first arc is about uh the the lord of hell and he's missing having embarked on a dangerous journey to find the mother of his abandoned son the prince of lies finds himself imprisoned and crippled by mysterious forces who seek to torment him for their own terrible ends Uh, it also has a talking tumor so you're getting the full vertigo experience (laughs) with lucifer uh, where can you get it? Go to your local comic book store. They need your business. It's a dying industry. Support them. But also, you can get it online at VertigoComics.com. And if you want the digital version, go to Comicsology.com. All the comic stuff, all the Vertigo stuff, is on there. The whole slate, all the Sandman books, and all the new original Vertigo titles, including Hexwives, uh, but also Border Town. And um, I think uh, uh, those are the only two that are that will be out right now. Um, but American Carnage and Goddess Mode are both coming out, and you can pre-order those. The whole line is really good. I can't recommend it enough. Now, here's today's episode.
1: Forever,
0: dog. Great episode today that we recorded over at New York Comic Con, where I had a real great time. So, thanks to everyone who came out to the panels. Um, the episode is with Julie Pleck and Kevin Williamson. Julie, of course old friend of the show, has been on a number of times, Kevin Williamson, first-timer. We have a really good conversation. Before that, I talk with pop culture witch, Beth Broderick. Beth played Zelda on Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the old ABC series, for many years. Seven years? Ten years? Is it still on? It might be. Uh, Beth and I have a great conversation about what she brought to the role, how it was written originally. Um, bringing more and subtler power to a witch like Zelda, which I think is really cool. Um, We also talk a lot about acting and writing. Um, Beth has has been in a million TV shows and movies, so she has a lot of great insights into uh, how writers can write better for actors and how actors can work better with material. So that's please enjoy that. Hey, before you do, two things. First, you know that Hexwives comes out on Halloween. You're welcome for the reminder. Um, it is a story of witches and empowerment. And I hope you'll go to your local comic book shop and pick it up. If your local comic shop is Golden Apple Comics here in Los Angeles, I will be there at 10 a.m. on Halloween. And uh, I'll be there for a couple of hours. I'll be doing a little signing. If you want to pick up Hexwives, I will sign that. If you want to pick up other books that maybe Acker and I have written, I'll sign those as well, Thrilling Adventure Stuff, whatever you got. Um, If past experience is any indication, not many people will show up, (laughs) in which case I hope that a lot of writer's panel listeners will show up because I would love to just hang out and talk and drink coffee and like talk about writing TV or comics or whatever, like Over the course of these 407 episodes, I've talked to over 3,000 writers, so this feels like a good time to come and ask me stuff that I've learned from talking to these writers. Um, I'd love to have a conversation with you all about breaking into the business, about writing comics and TV and whatever else you're writing, writing in general. Um, I feel like that this could be a nice couple of hours to kind of hang out and talk about writing, which is something I don't often get to do, except when I'm here in the studio. for hours on end talking about writing with writers but this is with you it'll be better so that's on halloween at golden apple comics starting at 10 a.m and now here's a conversation with beth broderick (coughs) i'm talking with beth broderick beth thank you for calling
1: my pleasure
0: uh, Beth, tell us uh, for people who don't know those three people who don't know because you have a million fans out there who love this show. Uh, tell us about your uh, relationship with w- pop culture witchery.
1: Okay, well, um, in the '90s, I started on a show called *Sabrina the Teenage Witch*, and I played Aunt Zelda.
0: Yes, and Zelda, uh, and and remind me, what was the other witch's name? Aunt Hilda. Hilda, that's right, We're sort of the mentors to Sabrina, and they were raising her. Um, yes. Was there—I'm curious to hear sort of about the beginnings of this, and, you know, we talked to Nell about it uh, a few months ago, and she talked about how, to her, the show was really always very much a comedy, and the fact that we got some— uh, women's empowerment out of it was a really nice byproduct of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Was there stuff built into the beginning of this character that, you know, was witchier than just, you know, the comedic role or more comedic than a sort of straightforward witchy role? What did the character look like at the beginning of the run?
1: Well, at the beginning of the run, I mean, Hilda was really the um, kind of, Wacky, wacky, funny one, mm-hmm. right? And Zelda was more of the um, conservative, knowledgeable, authoritative one. And um, Caroline and I were joking the other night that we were totally typecast. <laughs> totally <laughs> typecast. Like, because I'm always like sensible and predictable, and you know, and she's a, and she's a wacky, funny lady. Um, so I, I knew when I read the script that I would be Zelda. Um, (laughs) I did, I knew it, I knew it in my bones. I was like, I'm just weird enough, (laughs) but also normal enough that I will be perfect for this role. And, um, and then as we kind of, as the evolution of Zelda went on, it became very important to me because I was wearing all these kind of sexy outfits and short skirts and high heels and, you know, Zelda had some pizzazz in that way (laughs) and it really became important for me to her for her to also have an intellectual side Mm -hmm. that that young girls could see because in our culture and this still prevails today often we prevent we present the pretty girl as not too bright right yeah and and the pretty sexy one is is not a scientist right and so uh, I really wanted my character to embody both because I, I think that that's a, a huge um, I think that's a huge untruth <laughs> that we yeah. culturally portray in Hollywood for sure all the time and I can't tell you how many letters I got from moms saying thank you thank you for playing for showing my daughter that she can be the sexy one and the smart one at the same time that she doesn't have to you know give up. Um, academia to be accepted by boys and you know because it was a big deal to be that kind of a role model at that time.
0: Oh, for sure. And I remember um when we when I talked to Nell, she had mentioned how many women were working on this show and both in front of and behind the scenes. It was really so female driven. Did you did it feel like as an actor on the show that you had a voice in shaping this character early on?
1: Very much. That's great. Yeah. That's Very great. Very much so, especially you know, when we got into the second, third and fourth years, mm-hmm. then it became, you know, but and that's the wonderful thing about doing a series for that long is that you really start to own the character and become um, and and, 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 and influence it with, with things from your own life that you want to bring into it, you know, and, and it gets to a point when you're on a set like that where you read the script and you say, oh, guys, this is Caroline's joke. I'll set it up, <laughs> Let's, you know, like literally you just, yeah. you know, that doesn't belong to me, that belongs to her. Yeah. And, um, you know, when a new writer or a new director comes in, the actors at that point really offer him their wisdom as to who these characters really are. Of course. You
0: know? Yeah, you've been living with the character. I will say, you know, for, for how you started off saying that um, Caroline really got to be the wacky funny one, the dry humor... That you brought to Zelda, the the kind of uh, straight faced jokes that you got to tell were really effective and really you know a, a nice different flavor of character for a a multi-cam sitcom.
1: Thank you. Yeah. No, I didn't think that Zelda was not funny. Yeah. She just wasn't wacky funny, <laughs> you know, which um, is not really my style. You know, I I mean I I've done a lot of comedies. I mean on other shows I've yeah. played like. I played the dumbest girl in Washington on a show. I played Delilah Buchanan, who was a stripper on <laughs> um, on The uh, no Five Mrs. Buchanan. So mm-hmm. I have played other kinds of roles that were much wackier. But I really thought in this realm of witchery and witches that, that I could bring like that dry kind of gravitas to it and that that would be a better fit for me.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Did did it matter? to the character or to the portrayal of the character that these women were witches?
1: Not really. (laughs) It was just something that we took for granted. Yes, we can do magic, and if need be, I'll turn you into a pineapple. Right. And, you know, it was just, um, you know, we just were the human beings that we were within that context. We still dated, we still cared about boys, we still, you know... Mm-hmm. um worked i worked at the college you know so like we had we had real lives we just were capable of of you know uh, uh, super real activities and behaviors
0: right and, and and that usually was used for for plot or comedy as opposed to yeah
1: you know i mean and it wasn't it's not terribly serious when <laughs> your mode motive, of your motive transportation is flying a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not like you're taking that <laughs> to heart and really trying to contemplate the, uh, the meaning of that.
0: Exactly. Uh, I'm curious to hear, you know, you've played so many different kinds of roles. You have a real range as an actor. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear from someone who has played roles, you know, in the range that you have. What what makes for a powerful female role you know what makes what makes for a powerful woman on the screen but also you know what what are you bringing to a part when maybe it's not as nuanced or not as complicated as you'd like it to be
1: Mm -hmm. well there's a good example in a movie i did called two-step which i don't know if you've seen but if you haven't it's a great movie it's a little indie Mm -hmm. and my character was sort of this dance teacher who teaches the two-step in a Mm honky-tonk And it was written that she would be, you know, with the big bubble hair and, you know, and 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 just kind of stereotype, you know, Texan Mm two-stepper. And I sat down with the director and I said, you hired me. (laughs) And I can bring a whole other dimension to this that's going to be, I think, more successful, less on the nose. I said, so let's say that she was a real ballet dancer and got injured and now she's teaching this. You know, ballet dancers have long hair. I said, I think I should have some blue streaks in it because this is 2000s. You know, this is not like the, it, the character was written sort of from the 80s or 90s. And mm-hmm. I was like, that, that's not the time we're living in, <laughs> you know. And yeah. so, you know, she was sassy and she talked like that. But she had uh, she was very grounded in mm-hmm. what is real and what is modern. And I think the director was super grateful because that was not his initial vision. And I think he was really thrilled that it worked out that way yeah. because it makes the movie more timeless, you know?
0: Absolutely. Is there a lesson here for writers, right? Because this is the the original phase of this storytelling of creating characters. It begins with the writer. Is there a lesson here about, you know, either what an actor can bring or what we should bring to characters before even bringing our script to actors?
1: Well, I think that it's very um, it's very interesting now that I'm older. When you start playing roles in your mid 40s and in your 50s, a lot of these characters are written without any dimension at all. Mm-hmm. They are the mom or the grandmother, or they are the this, or they are the that. They are the the boss. They are the bitch. They are you know yeah. They they are very very uh, one dimensional. You almost <laughs> never see a character in that age range. That um, that it has a lot of complexity, you know. Very rarely, I mean, once in a while, if it's a Meryl Streep project, <laughs> yes. But sure. but in general, you know, for the for the 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 entertainment mill, those characters are not really assigned much uh, complexity, and so a lot of like I've done eight indie films in the last year and a half, wow. and the first thing I do when I get on set and uh, when I meet with the director is say. Well, what about this aspect of her character? And what if she dressed this way? And what if she isn't, you know, just a mom, but has, you know, an intellectual bent or has a, you know, or is obsessed with crochet or, you know, whatever, (laughs) or uses a cane, um, but also dances. You know what I mean? Like, where, where can we find the, the co- more complex places that this person can live because you know, and and, the, and there's always also the, the older woman whose grotesque sexuality makes her want to sleep with 18 year old, mm-hmm. which is just not true in real life. Uh, <laughs> but it is an old Hollywood trope. The, the, um, the old, you know, lascivious older woman Yeah, and um and i just won't play that that way yeah i won't because it's not true yeah. um so there i will maybe take on a role like that but i'm going to bring and i'm going to insist on bringing a lot of dimension to it you know because it, it is a stereotype that is a stereotype of something that doesn't exist i mean i'm 59 years old if you're 18, I'll make you a sandwich. I'll make you a sandwich. I'll pour you a glass of milk and some cookies. But I do not want to have sex with you. Not on any planet. Absolutely. There's no planet on which I want that to happen. And so when you see this reflected in movies and television, just, oh, and this has been going on my whole career. Um, yeah. You know, because when I first started, I was always the sexy one. So they would give me, you know, a bra and some panties and a gun or <laughs> goes <laughs> to do some kid, and I was just like, this is ridiculous P- women don't really behave this way yeah
0: i think I think that's an important lesson that you've you've given to writers to actors is really to find the humanity in these characters because humans mm-hmm. are complicated, right They're more than just one thing hmm um let me ask you so you I can't believe you've done all these indie movies in the past year. Are there any coming out that you want to uh talk about?
1: Um, well, there's one called The Becoming that I think is quite good. Okay. Um, it stars also Toby Kebler, um, who did Planet of the Apes, the recent Planet of the Apes and is a hell of a direct, uh, hell of an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really thought the script was interesting. I thought the, um, the actors were good. I really liked the director. So I think, I honestly think that's one to watch for. And it's a straight up feature. Okay. Some of these some of these indies now, you know, the market has changed so much. People are making independent films in 14 days for super low budgets. Um, you know, kind of putting them into the mill. Yeah. Of, you know, Netflix and all these different outlets that are looking for content. And so some of them are more serious than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just did a movie called Purity Falls, which I think uh, it had some wonderful actors in it. And I think if it's you know you just never know how a movie <laughs> of come course to, of how course. it's going to come together, but that one could could that could be a winner.
0: Great, we'll look and for both of, of those.
1: And then of course I have like last year at Christmas time I had three Christmas movies on.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: <laughs> yeah, I had two on <laughs> Lifetime and one on Hallmark, and my friends <laughs> in in DC and all in New York were like, "Would you please get off my TV? Seriously. What are you, Mrs. Claus?" <laughs> but you know, but I love that kind. I have that kind of tone um in my work mm-hmm. that kind of light comedian tone yeah. which is really perfect for those christmas movies and for the mom and almost mrs claus in one of them
0: <laughs> fun. Me, and,
1: me and santa were skinny but <laughs> we were still santa and mrs claus
0: sure well but, look and um, as we said we can't rely on old stereotypes
1: <laughs> no and i think that that's fun and those were really those are always a blast to do those kind of light comedy you know, TV movies that, that make people happy. Absolutely. No, I mean, I walk them. into a store and people are like, oh my God, I, I taped your Christmas movie so when I'm sad, I can just watch. <laughs> you
0: know? <laughs> and okay, you, well, good. correct me if I'm wrong, you are in uh, Texas right now, right? I am, yeah. Uh, do you live in Austin? Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Great city. I'll be out there for the uh, Austin Film Festival. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I you know, the thing, the truth is, I've, I mean, I've done movies in the last two years in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, Wil- Wilmington, Connecticut, Louisville, Kentucky. I just came back from Knoxville, Tennessee. So, you know, I don't feel that I really need to be in Los Angeles. I yeah. mean, I have a place there and I have a car there. <laughs> sure. Because I'm there often. But at one point, it just occurred to me, I think I could live wherever the hell I want to live, and that would be Austin. So I just
0: do. That's great, and it's a saner life. Uh, before we wrap up, let me ask you: Who are some of your favorite pop culture witches? Who did you love growing up? Who do you love now?
1: Well, I love Glenda the Good Witch.
0: Yeah, right. I mean,
1: she started it all, <laughs> and was kind of a little bit of a model for me. Mm-hmm. Um. Um. And of course, Samantha in Bewitched.
0: Absolutely.
1: It's fantastic. And I have to say, I've seen previews and several scenes from the new <clears throat> Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and Miranda Otto, who plays Aunt Zelda, is just on fire good. So oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. lo- really looking forward to that, and I really hope people will. We'll look for it and enjoy it because it looks like a great show.
0: It really does, and Kiernan is terrific. Uh, Do you have any words of advice for Miranda Otto on playing Zelda?
1: (laughs) Not at all. I saw her, and she's on fire. She doesn't need my help. She knows (laughs) what she's doing. That's awesome. She's a a very formidable witch.
0: For sure. As were you, I will say, Beth. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat.
1: My pleasure.
0: I'm excited to tell you about this terrific meal kit delivery service that I have been using called HelloFresh. I'm sure you've heard of it. They advertise on all your favorite podcasts, including this one. Uh, But HelloFresh is terrific. They shop, plan, and deliver step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can cook, eat, and enjoy. Um, I get the vegetarian option for HelloFresh because it's great to get fresh vegetables delivered to your home. Um, I made a Really great pasta dish with it the other night. It had some really lovely zucchini in it. Uh, The best part of this, and I've been so busy the past couple months with both Hexwives and other projects that I don't have time to shop and cook, and my wife has been busier than I am. So uh, having HelloFresh at home and knowing that we're going to make this amazing pasta dish or we made a really incredible rice dish recently that they sent that had some lovely bok choy in it. Um, and they all take like less than half an hour to make. And then we can get that done, sit on the couch, watch some baseball, and eat our delicious food. And you the, and because you get three meals at a time, which I think they have other options, but the best bet is really three three or more meals at a time. Um you are set for the week. So when you know you have busy weeks coming up, I think HelloFresh is a great option. Three plans to choose from, classic, veggie, and family. I got the veggie meal. Highly recommended. All the vegetables were super fresh. um, And I believe very local as well. All the ingredients come pre-measured and handy labeled meal kits. So you know which ingredients go with which recipe. It takes all of the thinking out of cooking, which I really appreciate. The recipes are simple. The instructions are outlined on pictured step-by-step cards. It's hard to screw up. If you are a person who doesn't cook, even you can make a good meal out of HelloFresh, you dummy. Spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping. Most recipes take only 30 minutes. This is really true. And most of them take under 30 minutes. uh, So you can even listen To not even a whole episode of the Writer's Panel while you cook. And HelloFresh is a subscription service. So your meals come to you week after week, just when you need them. Again, you don't have to think about it, which is the best thing in the world. Like one less thing to think about seems like the goal that all of us have right now. So we have a very special offer for Writer's Panel listeners for a total of $60 off. That comes to $20 off your first three boxes Visit HelloFresh.com slash Panel30 and enter promo code Panel30. That's HelloFresh.com slash Panel30 and enter promo code Panel30 for $60 off. HelloFresh!
2: They write,
3: they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, tonight or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now.
0: Uh, Please give a round of applause to both of our guests, Julie Plack and Kevin Williamson. Thank you both for being here. Listen, um, I was telling this group before you all showed up that this week and this day has been, you know, shitty. Um, I think we are, as a nation, suffering from a lack of empathy. And I think it's starting to, well, it's been affecting many of us for a long time, but it's, we're now getting to see the tidal wave of what happens when there's a lack of empathy. So I wanna ask you both this. We're gonna get real deep, real fast. Fantastic. I love your shows. I love the things that you both create, uh, separately and together. What are you doing to be an empathetic writer? How do you make yourself an empathetic writer? How do you put yourself into the shoes of your characters?
4: Well for me the the best way to do it is put characters in a situation that requires empathy mm-hmm. and see whether they f- fire f- fly or f- not. And and so oftentimes it's better to see them not Why respond is- with empathy so that we can see you know what empathy looks like when it is achieved. You know it's always an arc, it's always a journey, start yeah. them one place end in another place. But um
5: you know that's chilly. I found it most difficult to write characters without empathy because I I really am only kind of good at writing what I feel in my head. Mm-hmm. And I can prescribe a different you know rhythm to the voice or a different uh, meter to the voice, whatever. But I, it all is coming from, from inside. And so trying to write characters that are sort of straight evil or psychopathic or even sociopathic, I have a really, really difficult time um, because I don't know what makes them think and I don't know what makes people not think from a place of compassion. And I've been struggling with that in my day-to-day life so much, just flabbergasted um, at human behavior. And so I'm actually struggling less so as a creative person and more (laughs) so as a human being just trying to figure it all out. Yeah, it
0: makes sense. Um, How do you push through on those challenging characters? You know, I think so many of us, and, and, and Julie, I think we've even talked about this in the past, that like... So many of the characters we write are versions of ourselves or have pieces of ourselves in them, right? But sometimes you have to have characters who aren't quite yourself, who are from outside of yourself. Um, And those can be the more challenging characters. So can you tell me a little bit about tackling those kinds of characters? And and be specific if you can.
5: Well, I think I learned it from you, Kev. But the idea, or maybe we just mutually decided it, but that the villain in their own mind is the hero of their story. Mm-hmm. And they have wants and needs and desires, and they have a purpose, and they have a mission, and they have deep, deep, deep feeling and emotion about something. It just isn't necessarily the thing that's in everybody else's best interest. So um, that's what I tend to do when I'm characterizing somebody who is, is the quote-unquote bad guy, mm-hmm. is to just try to at least put myself in the situation of what they want
4: yeah we like particularly on vampire diaries I feel like all of our villains ultimately became heroes yeah. and and even when we tried to keep them a villain we couldn't keep them a villain because that's just not the way we operate
5: exactly we always
4: write from a place of passion and yeah. compassion and empathy and we fall in love with our characters whether they're good or bad and then we have then we struggle to keep them bad do you remember how hard it was to keep Damon bad oh god and then we didn't what season was it season two was it where we
5: first episode (laughs) uh, no no but season
4: two when we we (laughs) we were trying to make him bad again because the audience fell for him too quickly and we said no he's got to stay evil he's got to stay evil so we said i know what'll work we'll have him kill elena's brother yeah we'll actually watch him twist his neck and snap it and kill him And we did that, and the audience went, "Oh, poor Damon!
5: He's so upset. He's so sad. Nobody understands him."
4: And then we realized we better bring in a new bad guy real quick. Yeah, someone less sympathetic.
5: Yeah, built this
4: guy to be.
2: Yeah.
5: Well, you know, I mean, like just throwing back to both of our um, biggest biggest uh you know sort of inspirations kevin loved nighttime soaps and i love daytime soaps <laughs> and there's nothing better than a villainous character on a soap opera finding its way to redemption you know <laughs> and the, the scotty baldwin luke uh luke spencer paradigm so um and i was uh, not slanding <laughs> mm-hmm. no um i have a question
0: about that in like the plotting, and we, again, we've talked about this in the past, but I want to address this to both of you. The plotting in Vampire Diaries was so breakneck uh, that it was like a daytime soap or a nighttime soap. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about plotting with both of you and sort of coming out of the years that you did that show and applying the lessons you learned about just plotting to the material you worked on later.
5: Honestly, I think that I always say we got a little bit of a juice from, like, 24. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, I I always,
4: we kept saying we wanted the show to be epic, and we wanted the stakes to be high. And one of the ways to do that is to make them truly life and death stakes every single moment. And when you do that, you really have to turn the plot super fast. And I know we struggled in the very beginning. We were pulling our hair out. The writers were staring at us like we were crazy. And because they were like looking at us to what do we write, and we're like we don't know. We just know this isn't it, and we just because we were still trying to find the show and we were struggling so hard. But we landed on the mythology of the witches, I any mean, of, the, of the vampires under in the church buried. Yeah. When we when we landed on that, we realized we could, we had at least three or four more years of story. Wow. You know, or and we knew we could just keep creating and creating and creating from that.
5: And I've said a lot that I'm. I mean, you never really know what you're doing when you're doing it. So I wish we could be like, well, we studied deep <laughs> structure from, you know, William Goldman now. True um, desperation. True desperation <laughs> and deadlines. But I would have to say that I think it has a lot to do with um, the six-act structure, which for anyone who, who's listening in here who isn't a, a, a TV writer... You know much like movies which are broken into sort of a three act storytelling structure, um, television now with all the commercial breaks and broadcast is six acts and then really it 's seven acts if you count the fact that the teaser that takes you to title cards is an act in an, of its own and the first rule of an act break is that something really fucking cool is supposed to happen that twists the story in some way that makes the audience want to come back. And Kevin and I were really, really committed to making our show not lazy at all and really hitting every single act break with a wow. And so we just kind of kept like topping ourselves with the wows. But when you have to do that seven times an episode, almost by extension of that, your story is just like on a speeding track and it never stops because otherwise you have a boring act out and then someone's going to give you a note and then you're going to feel bad about yourself and it's just not worth
4: it. You know, I, one of the things I did as we were at the same time that Vampire Diaries was coming along is I started reading all these pulp novels and I started reading all this crime fiction and all those page turners. I was reading bestsellers like, I, you know, I, like Harlan Coben. Yeah, I yeah, would read all his novels and he's the master of the hook and the twist. Like he can hook you and twist it by the end of every chapter. I don't know if you guys have ever read any of his novels, but they're just like you just read them as fast as you can. And I study them. Where did he set him up? Where's the setup? Where's the hook? Where's the twist? Where's the hook? Where's the twist? Every chapter. And then I started figuring out how to do that on the page with a uh, with with your character. What does he want? So what is he after? Where's the hook? Where's the hook? Where's the twist? Where's the twist? And it just you, if you start thinking like that all the time, your brain just instinctively. Pulls it out.
5: Yeah, and and we used to get into the room and we'd all come up with what we thought was a great idea. And then Kevin would say, if everybody instantly agrees that it's a great idea, then it might be a good idea, but it's not the new idea. And he would say, okay, if you guys all agree on this, if this is the consensus, then what's the opposite of that? And let's go down that road for a while. And so he was always pushing us collectively to find the path least traveled.
0: I think it's really, it's interesting to me to hear about that aspect of plotting and finding that hook in the twist, uh, because I think both of you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this isn't an insult, so don't correct me. Uh, You both are such character-driven writers. You know, you both write from a place of character, you've created some indelible characters, and it seems like what's really clever about that hook-and-twist storytelling is it tends to come from the character's desires. I mean, that's exactly how you just described it. It was, what does he want and how do we give it to him? How do we change it? How do we not give it to him? Um, what I'm curious to hear about is what comes naturally? What do you use your writer's rooms for? What's the fun part? And what's the challenging part of telling stories that way?
5: I Only to leave no no pause. Uh, in the soundtrack, I will just start with I hate all of it. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I suffer greatly. Um, but I, I personally, um, what comes most naturally to me is the beat, the moment, the, the look, the gaze, the longing, the wanting, you know, the, the shift in the relationship or the build up to that. Uh, what I am terrible at, terrible at, is honestly the simple mechanics of, of, of a sequence. I, if you told me I had to go write a heist sequence, I would die. If I had to go write, you know, like Ocean's Eleven, I would never finish it. If I had to uh, do an action huge, you know, beat after beat and twist and turn in an action sequence, I would curl up into a ball and hide. So I use the writer's room for mechanics more than anything. That makes sense. Every
4: And I find that the writer's room, every show, uh, you utilize it differently. Mm-hmm. You know, it really, I'm not ever sure... What each show, what the writers' room is never the same. And when I'm work on my shows, sometimes, I you know I go in there and and we blue sky for a few weeks and we talk about all of our characters, where we want them to end up. We build the roadmap. We we lay it all out on the boards and you know all 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 the storylines, all the characters, all the wants, and then we start breaking each individual episode, and it all changes. Mm-hmm. And but but you know I find I try to when you're hiring writers you're sort of casting a show and sometimes you cast the wrong actor in the wrong part Mm -hmm. and that can also often happen in a writer's room where you've got this amazing talented writer but they're probably best suited for another show and and so you sort of but you but you, but that doesn't matter because you find out what they're good at you find out what their strengths are and you and you utilize it mm-hmm. and you make that work for you you know yeah. so it's every that's why every show's different every room's different but i i go i just want everyone to deliver a great awesome script so i don't have to touch it <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, let's let's talk about
0: that the role of the showrunner um, you know as i'm curious to hear about what what you learned early on? Um, what was the? What, was Dawson's Creek the first show? Did you run that yourself?
4: Well, yes. I well, not at the very, very beginning, but by the third week, I was
0: okay. <laughs> um, and this, yeah, <laughs> we won't get into it. Um, <laughs> You know, you're... what Wasn't I? Yes, <laughs> okay. I think so. You're you were coming... there. <laughs> you're coming out of the feature world, uh, which is a very... Can be a very solitary writing experience. You're thrown into this room on a very personal project. Um, tell me about the learning curve on that show. And what did you take from that that you still use helped,
4: to this day? It helped. Be... One thing helped more than anything is I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, At oh. any given moment, I had no idea what I was, going, what I was doing. I, I had written a movie, and it got made. It was a hit. Oh, my God. I was over my head. I was, I was drowning in water. I was always treading. I never was good enough. I didn't think anything I did was good. I thought everything I did sucked. I thought everyone was going to figure me out, mm-hmm. and I would go home crying every single night. And that's the God's honest truth, mm-hmm. because I was this little kid from from Goose Creek, North Carolina, who whose dream came true, hmm. and I didn't know how to deal with it. And I would go into the writers' room, and I would just, I would just talk and talk and talk, and then someone someone else would stop talking. I'd just shut up.
5: Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, like you didn't know what rules.
4: I didn't understand to break exactly. You know? I didn't know what rules to break, yeah. and so there were no rules. So that kind of helped in a weird way. Mm-hmm. I could just be free, but I also broke a lot. I did. You know there was a lot of po- there's a lot of politics to writing you know and do you want to dig in on that for both of you to dig in on that for well Manhattan? i didn't understand the hierarchy i'll just tell you when i was so young and now i do but i didn't understand the hierarchy of well there's the co-EP, there's the supervising producer there's the producer there's the story editor there's the staff writer and sometimes i wasn't aware that the staff writer has to sort of not speak when the Cody P's speaking. And you know, there's a you know, COE if you sort of say, Well, you're really good, why don't you 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 write this part, you write this script and they're like, No, it's the Cole P's turn. He's the hierarchy. They're good number two in charge. I don't know the politics. I didn't know. Right. And so, you know, I'm like, whoever has the best idea, I don't care who you are. If you're the PA, get in here. Write a script. You
5: can't <laughs> the, do that. The politics of the writer's room is, and I have to be very careful when I say this because I speak still from my history of not being a writer when mm-hmm. I say mean things about the politics of a writer's room, and then I'm like, wait, no, I'm a writer now, and and I've got to be more respectful of that, but I just think that, you know, I've heard writers say, well, I mean... I went to my first day and I have my staff writing job and the co-EP said, well, okay, so you should sit down there because you'll be speaking the least and you should maybe speak up like once, twice, every on the third hour. I think you should be comfortable raising your hand, but never overlap with this and always make sure to be quiet. And And if you get one idea on the board in the first week, then you can feel feel really good about yourself. And that kind of thinking and that kind of structure makes me like, break out in hives, because I just feel, look, I mean, I am the worst at controlling myself in a room. It has gotten me in so much trouble in my entire life, from, like, grade school on, and certainly <laughs> in my career, I am the worst. If I have an idea, I fucking just want to say it, and I don't want to sit and wait for everyone else to stop talking. <laughs> I just
4: want to, like, It's true. I it's true. It's if, if she has an idea, you know it, because she sits yeah. like this. <laughs> Dude, I get, see and
5: I'm. <laughs> but, but... I'm coming at it from passion and enthusiasm and connectiveness and a desire to contribute to the story. And as long as I can rein in my own personal hysteria just enough to be respectful of the space. The the idea of having to put politics into that too and be, oh, well the co-EP hasn't talked in six minutes so I should sit and wait for them to come up. First room I was ever in as a non-writer, the EP used to sit there and doodle on his notepad While everyone else talked, and he wouldn't look up, and he would just doodle and doodle and little drawings, and we'd all be, like, talking about ideas, just waiting for somebody to say, hey, what if we do this, and hey, that's a good idea, and he never talked, so I, not a writer, would be like, okay, well, we're going to do that. Let's move on, and that got me into trouble, too, (laughs) but politics are terrible. But But at the end of
4: the day, you know, you just, you'd be respectful, and now I feel like I've been doing this for so long, I'm working with, you know, it's... It's, it's. I'm a different person. I'm not the person I was then. So yeah, these, that's, the, everything yeah. I'm saying to you now no longer applies.
0: The, and that's the thing I'd kind of like to hear about is you both have series about to premiere within a week of each other. In fact, Legacies is the 25th of October. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and Tell Me a Story is on Halloween. Yeah. Um, so tell me, if you would, a little bit about how you run your room now. What did you take with you from past experiences? What did you learn from people you worked with or for?
4: Well, you know, I, I have this... Philosophy as of late, starting with my last show, is that I just want to have a good time. Mm -hmm. I just want to have fun, and if it's not fun, and some, and to my own demise, I will. I don't use my time wisely. Uh, You know, we get in, we go in, and we sit down, and we say, "Good morning." What'd you watch on TV last night? (laughs) What'd you think about it? How was it? You spend an hour or two just chit-chatting about, you know, the the death of network television, and then. You pass the menu around and start figuring out what you want for lunch. Absolutely. And before you know it, it's noon. Lunch is there. Well, we better eat. And then after lunch, everyone needs to take a walk around the block because, you know, we all sit too much. And so then we go and we walk around the block and we catch up and we, you know, pet, with the, pet the dogs in the building. And then we come back. And then around 3 o'clock, from 3 to, I don't know, 5.45, because I feel like you need 15 minutes to collect your stuff and go home and <laughs> get in the car, and so time of death is 5.45, and we make sure the writer's assistant, T.O.D., 5.45, he'll tell everyone, it's 5.45, everybody, but from, but from 3 to 5.45, we really work. <laughs> And we try to cram it all in. Right, what
0: do you expect to get done in those two and a, in two hours, 45 minutes?
4: I want a lot of laughter. And I don't want everyone to have a really good time. <laughs> and I know that this sounds is... crazy, but you, how, how, how off am I? I mean, we do work. Sometimes we come in there and go, all right, guys, it's, it's, it's due. And we just have to work. <laughs> and we'll just sit there and crank it out, and then we'll split it up, and we'll Frankenstein draft it, and we'll do all of that. And then, you know, and then we'll cobble it together, and then we'll read it and go, wow, that sucks. And then we'll say, well, you take this, and you take this, and you take this, and let's less suck. <laughs> and then we go to add it again. And then we all, you know, we've been gang, then we'll gangbang a script. But for the most part, that's kind of, we live in a constant world of gangbanging scripts because they've reduced... Group, we say group writing. Now.
5: Yeah, it's, we can't <laughs> say gangbang anymore. I know, it's the worst. <gasps> oh my God, I'm so sorry. It's worst. I'm it's so, so hard. I'm so sorry. I
4: apologize. <laughs> I apologize. <You're> I, right. <laughs> Please, we had to yeah. we had
5: to take a vote in the room. We're like, can, we, can, we just say, can we keep saying it because we've just been saying it and it doesn't have any sexual connotation and the. I never right even now. think
4: of it that way. I only
5: think no, of it no one, in the no, context of not. writing
4: a script.
0: Yeah, but but is that how really most we of your scripts put together? It. How's that? Frankenstein. Frankenstein.
5: Yeah, yeah. The more shows you do, the more you learn from the things that you don't do well, the things, the mistakes that you made, and ultimately, the more you learn from how much of your life and your soul you have to give over to this project and and there is a point of like literally spiritual diminishing returns after a while. So on Vampire Diaries we were in our office every day all day, all night. We were pulling our hair out, we were sleeping on our couches we were crying in our offices at 5 in the morning we would finish a script at 6.30 in the morning and I would sleep on my couch and Kevin would sleep on his uh, until 9 and then we'd get up and we'd start the prep calls and And the product was great and the process was the least fun you could wish on a person and And we're both incredibly proud of what we did um, but probably not as proud of how we did it and certainly i have you know i have scars of my own like in my own emotional heart from how little fun we had (laughs) over those two years because it was just backbreaking and so incredibly hard so you get uh, you get a few of those under your belt and you just are like you get to the one where you're like hey you know what this group of writers i'm working with like, I'm, I've now, a couple times on shows, had writers that were 10 times better than me at putting the words on the page. And when I get that, I'm like, <laughs>
3: okay. Yeah, and, like,
4: I've, you know? I, and you find a group of writers, like I've got the writers I'm working with right now, I've worked with before, you know, I'm working, you know, I've, I, 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 everyone that's helping me make the show right now, I, they're, you know, my yeah. family. And we all write together. They all, like, they're writing right now because I've got an episode nine is due, and I'm here. <laughs> and so I've, you know... They're a, not
5: having fun. It's, then, not, it's past 545.
4: <laughs> no, but I've got, you know, I've got a great day. team, and, and I love them, and I hope they love That's me, great. and I do everything I can to keep them so they don't walk out the door and leave me and abandon me. <laughs> like some people.
5: Oh, please. <laughs> oh, no. I uh, I think that every showrunner is different. When you like circling back to the room, like how do you run your room? Yeah. Um, I think that there are some showrunners who really are just so gifted at writing that the more support that they can have in every other area and the more support they're willing to give control over to the better i think some are probably not that great on the page but extraordinary managers and leaders and structuralists and that kind of thing and they should be given all the support that they need uh with the biggest writing staff of all these fresh voices so that they and, and producers so that they can sit in the room and build you know build the show there's showrunners who uh are good at everything and they're the ones that have like, you know, thirty million dollar deals and three hundred million dollar deals and to my right and to my left and
3: yeah. there's nobody there. <laughs>
5: All right. Um and that's great, but like you really have to understand what you're good at and you really have to be self aware about what you're not good at. And the bigger problem is I think just um bless our you know, our bosses but studios and the way that they build their budgets and the way that they, you know, say, well, this is what you get for the writer's budget, and we don't hire non-writing producers in here, and we don't have money for this, we don't have money for that. Like, if they were a little bit more fluid in terms of building the the support staff and support system around each unique individual showrunner, they would have a lot less chaos, probably.
4: Yes, I I do believe that you have to, they they sort of have a formula, these studios, and they have a template that they use for every everything and every show is different you know and you look at a show like this show really needs writers it, it's a special voice and it's really going to be on the page it's not about the action sequences or the visual effects it's really going to be about these people talking to each other and that takes time that takes the you know and, and you need to give them the time to do it and you need to give them the writers to do it and I sort of feel like too often there's just a template yep. for this network and this is the way it works and this is the amount of money you're given and it's just a mistake
5: the joke being, then, when you get behind and you're desperate, they'll throw any money at anyone to get them to come in and help you out. And you're like, I just literally needed like ten grand extra three months ago, and now it's costing you a hundred. So, like, think about that.
4: <laughs> but that happens
5: all the time.
0: Yeah. Well, what what are the things? I mean, imagine while it is different from show to show, it's probably there are probably certain things that are unique to showrunners that they need. Uh, in support, uh, no matter what the show is, have you both found that there are things that you specifically need that are helpful to you in making a show? And that maybe you could put in place before uh, you get behind or before, you know, to sort of hedge against these problems? You you
4: try. You know, like, uh, you know, knowing that I had... Tell me a story, for instance, with the one, the new one, is the first time I've done a 10-episode streaming series, Mm -hmm. and there's so many unknowns that I didn't know, because it's the first time I've ever worked in a non-network way, and so I didn't know how many writers I would need, I did not actually know for how many weeks I would need them, Mm -hmm. and so, but you have to answer all those questions up front,
3: Mm -hmm. you have to
4: you have right. to, well, well, you can have your EPs and you can have your co-EPs and, you know, and you find a great number two to help me manage my time, who, stand, who can stand in that room. Where were we? I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. Your number
0: two going into Tell Me a Story, did you know that person before? Yes, was it
4: I brought her on from a previous okay. show I worked on. I knew that, one, I love her dearly and um, I knew she was very good at uh, at all the things I was bad at, mm-hmm. which was time management, breaking story, keeping the room running so that I could go do, I, I you know, I always know that at some point I'm going to be lost to post there's gonna come a time where I'm gonna to have to go sit in the edit room. And at that point, the, the sh- engine has to keep moving. And so I always make sure I had a really strong number two who could get up there with, you know, at the whiteboard and just keep things moving always and generate, 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 generate. Yeah. Because that's what you need. That's what I needed. And I just, and I need someone else's ideas, even if I'm like, okay, that's great. And then I'll just maybe mm-hmm. rewrite them. But I need to start somewhere. And I need that fresh, I need someone to help me manage. Well, and that's not uncommon. A though. lot of what you would do for me, too, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I need someone to corral me a little bit. I need handling. And is I'm that... all over the place. I mean, Julie, you're nodding. Is this sort of a showrunner
0: experience? as you need that second that second person to fill in the gaps?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. You need honestly. You need like a second person in ev- across every department. Yeah. And if you're doing you know, multiple you shows, need somebody you need a line producer who's the right partner. Um, you and the line producer need like another producer who's on set, who's the you know sort of what I call the um, the grown up, you know, <laughs> the adult, the one that you know can. People can come to to complain about or that can give the tough love conversations or yell at someone if they're late and you know and also be the morale the morale glue and all that. Uh, who's not the money person and not the writer like that person in the middle that just like keeps the ship afloat? You need that number two in the room for sure. <clears throat> the thing that I've um, needed that's p- specific to me mm-hmm. that I've really fought hard to create a job for um, and make the studio pay for. Which every single show it's a fight. I swear to God, every but I but they. Uh, to their credit, they, they give in, um, is I like an editorial producer because mm-hmm. Kevin is right. You can handle everything. You can be the rock star showrunner of all time and be so on point with your room and your set and your and your leadership and your words and the page and then the cuts start coming in and you're dead, because post-production is a full-time job. And if in broadcast, you're often in post while you're still breaking and writing because you're trying to hit release dates, and it's different than streaming when you can get it all kind of done ahead of time. So I have found editors that I trust who I can say, hey, these are my broad stroke reactions to this cut, will you then now take it and make it Julie-friendly? And they, having worked with me for many years, will go and supervise the editor. And I don't sit in the editing room anymore. And then I come back in at the very end and kind of fine tune and tweak. And it takes me a day instead of a week. And it's changed everything. But finding that person is
4: incredibly hard. And I actually like Mark, sitting in the editing room more than I, yeah. Julie does. And I actually like to go in there because I look at the editing room as the final rewrite. Mm-hmm. And so I really do go in there and I, I change, I mean, I just, I love it. I love what you can accomplish in an editing room. I think that is your final rewrite. And you know when you f- and I have the same thing. I have a group of editors who I worship and I do and I, and I live for them because they they turn they can really turn my crap into some really great <laughs> uh, stuff. They're
5: so undervalued, underpaid, yes. underappreciated. Because they're true
4: storytellers. A good yeah. editor is a storyteller and it's it's not a technical job. It's an art. Yeah. And I hate that they're not um, held up to the yeah. place where they really should be. Um, but I worship them, <laughs> and um, and I do the same. The same thing. Yeah. You, the editing process is, takes over at some point.
5: But it is funny because you said you love editing, and like I love editing. And the joke of showrunning is much like life: you do the things you love first, <laughs> you do the things you hate last, and in showrunning. What you hate can vary in day to day, but it's usually involving sitting in the writer's room. And so <laughs> you'll do anything else and everything you can. Or some days it's like, oh, I can't write. I want to kill myself. Writing is so hard. <laughs> so you're like, I just, I got to be in the room. I can't miss it. I got to make that concept meeting because that concept meeting will flame out if I'm not in it. You know, you just, you find <laughs> everything you can do to put off the parts of the job on that day that you don't want to do.
0: But how do you steal yourself and go in and do them? They got to get done. Yeah, that's a good answer.
5: That's it. I deadlines. mean, deadlines. Deadlines. It's honestly that. Like for me, I'm a I'm a people pleaser. Like, <laughs> I, if there's a deadline, I'm gonna meet it. It's like this pathology, and it it it's great for me as an employee of a corporation that wants me to keep on schedule and on budget. But it's pretty lame as an artist because I'm like, <laughs> okay, it's due. Well, it's done then. God damn it. Whereas Kevin, who's like a true artist, is like. It's never done. I'm just out of time, you know? And <laughs> yeah. he's always up to the last minute, like, making it better.
0: <laughs> we were talking before you came in about personal storytelling, telling stories that only you can tell, or telling stories that matter to you. Um, not necessarily autobiography, though Though you've done some of that. Um, these shows that you're currently working on, are they... Shows that only you could do, do they come from you? What part of you is in that
4: show? I think, you know, every show is different, but you have to find your personal connection to it. You know, I think one of the things that, you know, Julie and I used to do, I mean, you know, we'd sit together until we were crying together, and then we would start writing. And we would just talk it out, and I still do that to this day. I sit at my computer and I cry like a baby, and my dog thinks I'm nuts. <laughs> but I do it, and I and kind of, I connect. Like, and you were talking about the world and empathy, and, and, and every day we wake up and there's this new thing on, the new, We have to wake up every morning and turn on CNN and say, oh, what happened now? You know, what did he say today? And, and it's just sort of mind-boggling, the world we live in, and I'm so confused by it, and I'm so baffled by it, I just put that in to tell me a story, and I created a, char- a relationship, a character, where this woman, this man wants to marry his fiance, and that was their plan. They get, they'd have, they're already behind. They were supposed to get married last year, have a child today. And she finally admits she doesn't want to have children because she doesn't believe in the world she's living in. She doesn't think it's, a, it's, it's responsible to raise a child just so we can get shot in a classroom or just so that it can, you know, she's just terrified. And, and, and that's sort of the journey that this one couple is going on and it just so happens it's the three little pigs. Yeah. You know, I just sort of incorporated it into the fairy tale so that it would be a modern day telling of the three little pigs. Yeah. And we'll see a true transformation of a wolf. And whether or not he has empathy.
0: Yeah. Uh, Julie, what about you? Um,
5: <clears throat> I, uh, I actually have a hard time when, I'm, when I try to say, oh, I'm going to write a piece of myself. And so I really just ground everything in, uh, in the very simple idea of longing for love and not wanting to be alone. And that is something that, you know, on, the, on my sad days defines me. And so I just, uh, I just try to put everybody in a situation of, of what is it that they have, are they happy? What would make them happier? What's making them unhappy? And then just building and, an emotional journey from there.
4: And one more thing for you and me both. Family. Yes. We always write about family. Yeah, and, in the,
5: whatever form it takes.
4: And then I, I was looking, they were asking me questions about Tell Me a Story earlier because I was on a panel and every single storyline at the core is about family, lack of family, desire for family, misfit family, longing for family. It's, yeah. it's all about, and, and then you look at Vampire Diaries. It's yeah. just, at its core, yeah. it's about family. And I sort of feel like that's something that we both
5: yeah. sort of... Community. community,
0: community, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, I think you do keep seeing... We we all come back to the themes that obsess us, right? Uh, whether we know it or not. Um, yes, what is your question?
5: Hello. Oh, okay. I didn't know if this was going to work or not. Um, hi. First, I want to thank you both for being here, because... Um, like Dawson's Creek and Vampire Diaries are honestly like, two of the shows that made me start writing to begin with and like brought me some of my best friends so I'm really glad to be here and I'm really glad that you guys are here. Um, so my question is mainly about starting out. So for somebody who wants to get into the business, wants to become a writer, has gone through, I don't know, whatever you go through as a young person before you get to being an older young person, um, and wants to like get through that door, what are your suggestions, and what do you look for from a new voice?
0: Let's, I'll, I'll preface this uh, before you begin for just a general note. Um, let's try to keep these answers somewhat brief, uh, so we can get to all of these folks before we oh. run out of time.
5: I, I'm <laughs> bad at that. Okay, then, briefly... <laughs> Get to uh, L.A. or remain in New York if you can find the path through there. Um, Get in whatever industry door you can by way of temp agencies, by way of H.R. at the bigger companies. Take the shittiest job that you can find. Uh, Impress somebody they'll send you over to another shitty job and press somebody else and then get yourself to a writer's office eventually, um, which is usually a who you know, but if, after a couple shitty jobs, you will actually know somebody that can put you up and then be the best damn assistant in that office that ever lived. And then if you have the talent and anything to back that up, it will not take you long at all. In fact, probably within the body of a season, somebody will at least look at your work and give you feedback, if not actually ask you to write some scenes.
4: And write, write, write. Whenever yes. you can, write. Just keep writing, and then don't just get lost in the in the idea of being an artsy fartsy writer. Look around and say, "There's a business to this. What is missing from this universe? What story is not being told?" Write this second, then write it. Yeah, and, and write it from your heart. Can,
0: what story can you tell? Yeah, what story? Cause can that's because you that no your
4: knows story it. is the story that's missing.
0: Yeah. Um, I think there's a a secret in this industry that uh, we want to let new voices in. We want to find, like everyone wants to be the person to discover someone new.
5: Love it. It's an
0: exciting feeling when you read a great script by someone, and there are some of them, but there aren't a lot of them, so let yours be one.
5: Thank you.
2: And good luck. (laughs) Hey, guys, how are you doing? Um, I actually, uh, for the first time this year, have been making a living as a writer for like the first time ever. Uh, thank you. Um, and, uh, and Ben, this, your, your podcast has been like a, a lifesaver for thank me. You. Um,
0: that's,
2: that's why I'll allow your question to drop.: Okay, off. Well, thank you very much.: uh, I, uh, I, w- I'm helping to uh, develop a series right now, short form content, blah, blah blah. Uh, the thing is is that now that writing, writing is actually the job, Um, it's the day-to-day part of it, the, the, what do you do when there's that time of the day where my brain goes, well, that's it, you've hit your limit, probably as much as far as you're going to go now, no more ideas are coming, what then?
5: You have to fill the well. That's what Barbie used to say. She said, your well runs dry and a dry well just produces dust. You have to go outside or read a book or sing in the rain or whatever. You have to experience something. Even if you don't have time to do it for more than 15 minutes, go fill the well. Look at a person on the street and ask yourself what their backstory is. Uh, Go walk your dog, do anything, stare at the sun yeah
4: I mean as writer you know it's like somebody else said Not it directly someone said it before me it's like you know we writers write to live life twice and so which I always thought was very poetic but also a very you know something that I always held on to and I felt like you got to live your life before you can write it and so just go live
5: Yeah, yeah.
4: Thank you'll you. get an idea and
5: take a nap <laughs> okay. allow yourself that, as much that's
2: usually what I do yeah. And yeah. Yeah. is take a nap
5: and yeah. somehow that
2: works thank you <laughs>
5: Sleep on it, exactly.
1: Hi. Uh, hello. Um, so uh, when I want to learn how to write self-reflexive genre work, I look at the Scream screenplay. So since I studied you, I'm very curious what you studied to learn how to do that. Ah.
0: To... She to, to, studies
1: Scream, so what did you study?
0: Yeah, what did you look at to screenplay. learn how to write a screenplay?
1: Not a screenplay, self-reflexive genre work. Genre oh, work specifically. Genre. Oh, okay.
4: That was... Um, th- there's, th- there's a lot to this. That's a... <laughs> Great question. It's a big question and it has a really long answer and I'm gonna do it as short as I can. Go for it. But in terms of screenplays that I, not screenplays, you wanted to where the voice came from? Is that what you're asking? Like, the genre. What what are your genre inspirations? All right. Well for the screenplay of Scream, my influences were um Into the Woods, the musical. What? Yeah. <laughs> Explain. I was a waiter. Uh, at the uh, restaurant Encore Encore next door to the Martin Beck Theater where Into the Woods was playing and Stephen Sondheim used to come in all the time and give all the waiters free passes to go sit and watch the movie to watch the musical and I was watching and I saw act two probably twice <laughs> as much as I saw act one but I must have seen it around 87 times in the it was, it's an original cast and I watched it and watched it and went the deconstruction of the fairy tale, how was that, you know, watching how he subverted the genre of, you know, just subverted the fairy tales, and I just kept thinking, well, what if he did that to the horror genre? You know, because I'm so sick of all these movies. that We've seen them all before. We know them. We know what's going to happen. I could, write, you know, I would watch horror movies, and you could just, this is going to happen, and you'd be right every time. And so I just wrote what I wanted to see, and I used the inspiration from Sondheim's Into the Woods of how he deconstructed his fairy tale, and I deconstructed the horror genre. That's probably that's the cleanest answer. answer. That is There's a true. lot more to it.
5: <laughs> we could also sing it for you from start to finish. <laughs> <laughs> if we had time. Happily, you know, like I, I would seen, say this: like seeing somebody else be brilliant, yeah, is the greatest catalyst for your own ambition and your own creative excitement. That's Every time point. I see Hamilton, I weep and I cry and I am so lifted up by the pure artistry yeah. that I think, God, I want to do something that people love this much and that yeah. wraps yes. itself into a story so beautifully. If only
4: it's you know? divinely inspired. It feels like you're watching Ooh. it. It's so special, you know. It's a game changer, and that's I love game changers. And that was a true game changer. I've seen it five times.
0: It's incredible. I'm curious to hear about um, what were some of those other things for you? Because I think, Julie, you put it exactly right. It's seeing someone do something at the peak of their talent, their ability, their passion. What were some of those things that you saw when you were maybe younger that that inspired you?
4: Uh, Well, Halloween, the movie for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reading Carrie Fisher's Postcards from the Edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was so self-aware. She was so aware of who she was and and her actions, and she was able to comment on herself and make fun of herself and bring you to tears all in the same sentence. Yeah, beautiful.
5: Yeah, I mean, mine uh, uh, older, but um, my so-called life mm-hmm. and like party of five and everything that was basically on TV. The year I graduated college, when I lived with like four people and we would sit around and watch them together, and just for me, it was like, how can I tell stories about? Just the simplicity of want and love and it, everything at its simplest and loss and and then I started working for people who worked in the genre. I worked for Wes Craven and then I worked for Kevin and so it became okay. Well, you can tell a story about longing if you put a vampire in it. <laughs> and then you know, coincidence. I happened to read like you know, I read Stephen King and Anne Rice and and you know and Robin Cook and Peter Straub and you know I re- and, and all that stuff. As a kid, I read everything. Uh, across all genres and so I was able to just draw back on the stuff that I had grown up with Mm -hmm.
4: Uh,
0: and I promise we'll get to these last four questions but I want to just follow up by asking do you both now feel the weight of creating those things that other people are drawing inspiration from
5: Well, when we hired Caroline Drees, who's amazing and is now going to do Batwoman for um, the CW, we hired her season one of Vampire Diaries about three quarters of the way through. And she said, this is the job I want more than anything in the world because I grew up on Dawson's Creek. And she was like 28 or something and 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 it almost knocked me over i was like oh my god here's a writer who like we're hiring to be a senior level writer who basically was a child when dawson's <laughs> creek was getting made and it shaped her career and she worships kevin so much and this is i'm old we're, old. we're old. <laughs> old but it's it's kind of nice
0: but yeah you you now get to work with these people who can inspire you back which i imagine is very nice all right yes sir
3: hi how's it going um, so I love hearing about um, how writers in the writers' room and all the backstage stuff, and like I love special features like that because what's the point of getting DVD? I'd rather find the VHS if it doesn't have any bonus features. Sure. <laughs> and I just wanna, I wanna know because um, I was in an IP panel like yesterday talking about this. Um, if you come up with idea, being showrunners, being have you have this name, you created this universe that's now in CW that won't end. And if you come up with, a, like, a show or idea and you have something that's, like, really core to you that you can't change at all, like, how far are you willing to fight for it? Because, like, one of the things I like is, like, um, I saw a thing called Chaos on the Bridge about how Gene Roddenberry uh, brought back, you know, Star Trek. And he, like, he was so strict on that. And he didn't want Patrick Stewart, but then they convinced him because it was a good idea.
0: Yeah, okay. Let me, let me summarize. Yeah. Um, when do you know to compromise? When do you know that your vision is the right vision? When do you know maybe it's not?
5: I feel I'm 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 a I'm a pusher with
4: forward. regard to original material or
5: yeah just in general it's, yeah it's in, in
0: general builds, I mean it's,
5: stuff like that. the
0: whole job is yeah. collaboration right TV gotcha. is a collaborative yeah. medium is kind of what it comes down to I think gotcha.
5: I'm, I, it depends on how deep in my soul I feel the, the fight. Like, television is subjective storytelling. An audience, half an audience will love something that another half hates. (laughs) A studio executive will think something's brilliant, a network executive will think it's shit. Like, you can love something that somebody else thinks is mediocre and vice versa. So, like, there's so much subjectivity in it that I'm willing to, toss my hat back into the subjectivity ring and say "All right, well if it's that big of a deal I'll just change it because I'll make it good the other way too you know Um, but I also there are times when you just believe in your heart that this is the right way to go and and I've only a couple times in my career gotten in a situation where somebody was pushing back so hard on me that I had to say over my dead body Um, but you do have to be willing to say it and you have to be willing to like get in trouble for it
4: and very rare I can't I'm such a people pleaser that yeah. if you give me a note, also I, I, I am also an insecure writer and you may be right. Mm-hmm. And most of the time you're right because I've only, I've written it, I've done it this way and I want to listen and I take in the note and then I'll even you know, I'll either go to the editing room or I'll go to the page and I'll try it and attempt it. I'll go. And I guarantee you nine times out of 10, I addressed the note, but not the way they said do it mm-hmm. because I got back to it and said, Oh, here's the note behind the note. There's always the note behind the note. And if you can figure out what the note behind the note is, there's so many ways to scan the cat. Yeah.
5: There was a thread, the thread on Twitter about um, how there's like this thing in the canon of X-Men that, um, that um, Professor X and, and, and Magneto met when they were 17 for the mm-hmm. first time. They were saying that like for years and years and years, people trying to be respectful of that one line in the canon like couldn't, couldn't find the pitch that would make first class work. And then finally, I think whoever, it must have been Brian Singer, whoever was like, fuck it, we're ignoring that part of the canon. And then a whole new like arm of the franchise was born. So. It breaks it
0: all open. Yeah. yeah that's funny. Yeah. Um, all right, we thank have you. time for these last three questions. Very quickly, please. Uh, uh, these guys want to go home. They've been here all day.
5: I got nothing to do. No, thank, thank you me. for <laughs> saying. <laughs> but, but the
0: tech guys want to go Oh, yes. Yeah, so. uh,
5: <laughs> he, he wants to go home. I had to change my question a bunch of times because my question was touched on with yeah. all these other
3: questions. They're all good questions. Yeah. yeah. But
5: um, what I'm wondering is when you, say you're doing something with vampires and you've read all those different vampire stories and you know that sometimes they describe a movie by saying it's just it's it's like Thelma and Louise meets uh, Vampires. The Terminator or I mean. something like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Um, how do you go about knowing that what you're writing is different enough from the other stuff that's already been put out for you to put it out there for somebody to see Mm -hmm. it and and review it.
0: Well, I remember we talked about this uh, when you were first on, uh, Julie, on the podcast about, you know, you two were a little hesitant to take on Vampire Diaries.
4: Kevin was like, no. uh -uh, I was like, no, I passed on it. I did not want to do it. Because
0: Twilight was at its heyday.
4: And I thought it would be the nail in my coffin and everybody else's (laughs) coffin, the vampire craze's coffin. And I remember we both were reading the book and Julie calls me and she goes, what page are you on? And I'm like, Sixty-four. She goes, stop reading. Just stop reading. You're going to hate it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> and I stopped reading. And I never finished it. And Julie told me about it. And she filled me in on all the stuff when I needed to know something. And 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 but
5: and yeah, we... and I said, this is the stuff that's exactly like Twilight. And this is the stuff that's super reminiscent of Buffy. And this is the stuff that kind of reminds reminds me of the Vampire Academy. And basically just listed everything. Now, the only thing we had hinging on, you know, going for us was that the Vampire Diaries books were actually written before any of the other things were, mm-hmm. so uh, maybe Buffy. Yeah. I don't. And know.
4: I and I always longed to do um, a Dark Shadows, like mm-hmm. a modern day Dark Shadows about a small town that had all these things that go bump in the dark. And so, in a weird way, The Vampire Diaries—that's what I—I I, I always trying to turn Mystic Falls into this sort of gothic suspense story of the macabre and and even though it was vampire centric for a really really long time that was that's what i wanted to do with it and i think that's kind of if you go back and watch it is sort of a dark shadows the town of mystic falls did was living and breathing and it was you know had ultimately when you look back at eight years there's had a mythology that would speak to that
5: yeah and you know ultimately television is a voice-driven business you can write the 17th cop show, uh, you know, of the season, and if your voice is David Kelly, or Stephen Botchko, or whoever, like if your voice pops as individual and people like it, then you're gonna have the best cop show, and it doesn't matter that there's 15 and 16 more just like it. That is true. Yeah. Cool. Thank Thanks. you.
4: Hey, I'm a playwright,
0: musical theater writer, um, and I also teach m- middle schoolers. Oh so my god! Awesome. Got. The best. Um, what are the three tenets or uh, of a uh, or whatever, three tenets of a brilliant script or screenplay. Uh, a pitch, I mean, excuse me, for those. For a pitch? For a pitch, for a screenplay. There okay. okay.
5: Um, brevity, quick and easy. Uh, uh, can, uh, three, you, you give one. <laughs> oh, sorry. Way to go. <laughs> um, I was just gonna start rattling things off. Wait,
4: you mean with a pitch or a screenplay? Brevity. For brevity? For a pitch, right? For, brev- for a pitch. One of the three is brevity. Be fast. Mm-hmm. Oh, be fast! And in terms of like pitching it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if you're talking about a pitch, it has to be your premise, your idea. Your your you got to hook them. You got to hook them. And, and so I would just say um, your your premise and your structure, premise and idea. That's big, and you know, if you're pitching, you have to go in with a big idea, and you have to pitch it and sell it like your life depended on it. So you can write it,
5: mm-hmm. and. Uh, and surprises.
4: Well, that yeah, it that doesn't could.
5: have to mean, mean like you're a night Shyamalan or Shyamalan, like you know, everyone's dead. Know. <laughs> but find a find a way to p- pitch your story or to put your story on the page so that whoever's reading it finds something, a choice that you make every now and then, uh, the choice that they wouldn't have expected. Well, just
4: excitement, you know, because if you you know you had an excitement to write it, you have an excitement for this project. You have to share that with them and make them get just as excited as you are. Yeah. so that they'll pay you. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, there's
0: also 400 episodes of this podcast you can listen to for that advice. All right, last question,
3: very quickly. Uh, 400. Oh. Hey, um, I, my question is just, what is your most important part of a writing story? Is it like um, just the characters, or do they have the characters interactions, or like forming the plot around the characters? Great.
5: All of the above. Unfortunately, I mean, some people are great at dialogue and really lousy at structure. Some people are brilliant structuralists and dry as a bone on the page. But they're all important. Yeah. But everything is equally important, but it, it's individual. It's, it's the individuality of your
4: work. But, you, but when you start to write something, do you latch onto an idea, a theme, a, 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 just some sort of feeling? Like What is it that makes you sit down to write?
5: Desperation. No, um, <laughs> uh, a desire to capture something emotionally that makes me feel something. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and that's as, as good of a, as advice as any that you will ever get. Uh, please give a round of applause to Kevin and Julie. Thank you. Thank you both Thank for you. being here. Thank you all for being here. Enjoy the rest of your conference. Thank you. Thank you, for me. Thank you for listening to the writers' panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review The Writer's Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writer's Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you and see you next week.